0: Hello and welcome to the Crop It Like It's Hot podcast, brought to you by Arable Farming Magazine and The Crop Tech Show and sponsored by Yara, the crop nutrition company. I'm Alice Dyer, your host, and today we're going to be looking at future-proofing your arable business. And just a quick reminder, as always, you can claim a CPD point for tuning into this podcast by emailing your basis account number plus the name of the podcast, to cpd at basis-reg.co.uk. Now, at the time of recording this, a Brexit trade deal was still waiting in the wings. However, even if a deal has been made by the time you're listening, there's still a lot of uncertainty on the horizon for all of us. But the guests I've got on today's show are going to talk to us about where to start when it comes to taking a step back and looking at your business's performance, and also where good places to focus on making changes might be, so whether that's, you know, machinery or crop inputs or diversification maybe. Now, my first guest wears many, many hats, but today he is business consultant Philip Wynne, and he's going to set the scene a little and tell us where the majority of his concerns lie. Morning Alex. Morning Philip, how are you? I'm all right. Good, so Brexit, we're all quite familiar with the challenges coming forward, not just for the arable sector but for farming in general, but for a lot of arable farmers you know 2020 will have really pulled on the purse string shall we say, it's not been an easy season Um, and we've also got Brexit coming up, we've got phasing out of BPS, what do you see as the biggest challenge for arable farmers going into this period, and when would you expect them to really start to feel that pinch?
1: Well, I think that's a, that's a really good question, Alison. And, and I guess you know, for quite a lot of uh, farmers, um, you know, the, the, the what's been what the impact of the 2019 autumn, the uh, 2020 harvest, that the from a cash point of view, they are really only starting to feel that pressure now. And, of course, that's um, linked with the fact that most people have established their crops and, therefore, the working capital required in 2021 to get those crops to harvest will be greater. So there is quite a cash squeeze. And then you overlay the issues around Brexit and BPS and both of those, or the reduction in BPS, both of those are really immense challenges for, particularly for, for all sectors, but for the arable sector specifically. And I think if you... Ask well, you know, which is the biggest challenge? I guess, I guess, in the short term, Brexit could be if there's a No Deal. Um, you know, for those involved in fresh produce from January the first, there are going to be all sorts of logistical issues um, in in accessing uh, uh, produce from Europe. Um, whether that's around, say, haulage and logistics, but you know, produce is perishable; you know, it doesn't stand stand time delays. And then, as you move through 2021. You know the Millers. You know they've got an um, immense program of importing uh, wheat, um, and, and that certainly could be disrupted. And then you move probably into the livestock sector in May June, where the sheep sheep sector and quite a lot of arable farms have sheep as well, and the lambs, you know, grow lambs and sell lambs, and that will be definitely impacted by May June in terms of their access to European markets when uh, our demand. Um, is exceeded by a supply of lambs coming forward you know on a on, on next harvest you know for arable farmers we've probably got the biggest wheat crop in the ground um, and we need to export um we won't be able to use it all so you can sort of see understand some of the you know big implications uh, that brexit's going to cause on the positive side of course we'll have weaker currency uh, and that will help some of our old crop and the reduction in uh, support payments. I mean, that is that starts to bite next year. But actually, what you know, Defra have released last week, you know, the the reductions are now probably swifter and 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 quicker. They're quicker and more uh, sharper than perhaps we had um, initially thought. Um, and clearly, those with any scale will see some pretty penal um, levels of reduction. Uh, by 2024 with, you know, 70% off the top slice. So, you know, BPS has a fundamental, going to have a fundamental change in the way that we farm for the long term now. So I think Brexit is short term, BPS is with us for the long term. And I think, you know, the, the point I'd like to get across is that while we don't know the real details of what replaces uh, direct support in terms of ELMS in terms of sustainable farming initiative and incentive. Actually, we've got to start planning our businesses now for the future, an era where fundamentally there will be less support. Even with ELMS, we will not replace all the um, support that we've had under the Direct Payment Scheme.
0: Yeah, and I guess that's the thing, isn't it? There's such a lack of clarity, you know, we don't know if there's going to be a deal yet with Brexit. Um, we don't know what the future for Elms means, really. So, how can farmers sort of understand the impact of this on their business now, and understand what they need to do?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean just just going back, I think it's quite useful to just just quantify a couple of uh, points, and that is, yeah, you know, on a no deal scenario you know we could see potentially uh, you know a 20% cut in our total income from farming you know that's that's pretty significant um, and um, so you know we we shouldn't underestimate the impact of a, of a no deal scenario i think in terms of um, uh, you know how do we how do we cope in this really uncertain time i think actually the first thing to do is to really understand Where you are, you know how does your business actually perform? You know how do you how do you, you know, in terms of your cost production, are you in the top twenty percent or are you in the bottom twenty percent? And then you know what is the scope for changing that performance? You know because there are there are certainly going to be some farming businesses where you know soils are not necessarily the best. And therefore, you've probably got to have a, you know, a different approach for the future and, and look at, uh, you know, more of the uh, environmental factors that are going to come in the in years ahead. So I think the most important thing at the outset is understanding where you are in the spectrum. You know, is your cost of production for wheat £110 pounds a tonne or is it £170 pounds a tonne? They're, they're probably the extremes. Um, but actually, what is your opportunity to um, get back to something which is going to be viable for the, for the longer term. So I think understanding cost structure is, is the really, regardless of anything else, is the, is the initial key.
0: And I guess that comes down to benchmarking really then?
1: Yeah, I think it does because, you know, if you look... Uh, the difference between wheat production costs and the top and bottom quartiles, I guess there's 60 pounds a tonne's difference. And and certainly, if we're at the higher end of that range, it, it just isn't going to be uh, viable to stay on that uh, on that basis. So I think you've got to understand that how can you change your production systems and your cropping to actually influence, um, you know, that, that, that cost structure. Um, and, and I think, you know, you know, you know. I think, I think farmers. We've all been slightly guilty of saying, you know, scale is 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 you know solves the problem. Well, it sort of does solve the problem, but actually, productivity is still key. You know, actually, productivity from your land is absolutely fundamental. um you know, scale, yes, multiplies it up, but you know, it won't resolve the key issue about poor performance.
0: Okay. And you say um, change production system and cropping. That sounds like some quite substantial changes um, that you're thinking farmers are going to make. So it really is a case of not being able to do what they've always done and carry on with it. I
1: think fundamentally that, that's absolutely right. And, and you know, we, we, we're not in the easiest of places because, of course, we've got issues with um, two
0: of our major break crops. You know, there's being should seed be. In our part of the
1: world, there's very little seed grape uh, being grown. Um, so that's clearly going to have an impact in um, the way that we, you know, we run our arable businesses. Um, you know, it has been a really good, profitable break crop for many, many years. And it's allowed us to get on with cultivations early and prepare land ready for, for autumn. For, you know, for for, for wheat uh, establishment. So I think, you know, the the, this, the issues around our break crops, overlays just another whole tier of problems around how what does this cropping plan look like uh, for the future? And I think you know there are going to be farms where, um, you know that because of their, their soils and their potential of productivity, then they will probably want to utilize some of these environmental schemes to their, you know, to their optimum. You know, I, even now, I mean, we're seeing in 2021 quite a, a large number of arable farmers are using um, AB15 grass legume mix as part of their rotation what you've got to understand is as soon as you take that land out of production, you've got to do something about your overheads, because you will still have the labour and power costs in your business. So I think, you know, once you, you know, in, in terms of resolving the, the, the rotation, the cropping, um, you know, actually uh, however you, you know, whatever you arrive at is your option. You've got then to get this hunk of labour and power costs, and you know, positioned so that it's still uh, viable you still got a viable business I think there're going to be farmers Alice that you know with good soils and good performance I, I don't think there'll be such a fundamental change in their sort of uh, in their overall uh, cropping pattern, but I think for those who are not at the higher end of that performance grade and don't have the opportunity because of their soils, they will have to look at the environmental schemes for replacing some income but necessarily change their labor and power. costs
0: so labor and power that's that's really the place to focus
1: yeah but i mean you know if you look at your production costs, i guess it makes up you know sort of 50 60 pound a ton on 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 the average farm it's that sort of number so it's a big chunk and uh you know as soon as you uh you know as soon as you um change uh workloads um you know it 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 will impact the amount of area you put through, whether it's a combine, whether it's a sprayer. And as soon as you reduce your cropping area, you will impact the um, uh, cost effectiveness of using using machinery. So you've either got to do work for other people, you've got to, or you've got to share. That, you know, we've had really good examples over the last few years where you know neighboring farmers have got together, they've shared machinery, uh, and, and you know, created some really strong partnerships. And I can see that more and more about having to happen in the future because, the, you know, the cost of the equipment is now so high. And, you you know, what we have to achieve all the time is this sweet spot where you're, you know, maximising its use.
0: Yeah, that was going to be my next question. It's so broad because, you know, each arable business is very unique. We have some on tenancies, some on contracts, some owned but is there any particular sort of business structure that you see working very well in future?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, as I've alluded to, I think more and more farmers will have to be working more collaboratively with their neighbours and sharing sharing machinery. I think that's, you know, it's just fundamentally essential. Um, you know, some of, the, some of the new technologies coming in is actually going to be help. It is going to help reduce the actual capital cost is high and therefore you've got to have the errors put through it to make it to justify it. so i think working together um is is fundamental and i think they're going to be the extremes because there may be people who think that actually their neighbor could do the job better than they could so you know moving into a more of a contractual relationship or a contract farming agreement you know could easily be uh, a, a solution for uh some farmers and i think I think what I'm alluding to is, is actually being open about um, what the opportunities are for doing things better in the future. Um, I think we're all going to have to be very open-minded, um, you know, living in the past isn't going to work because this is a fundamentally new structure. It's not about area-based payments, it's about outcome-based payments and it's going ch- to change all our mindsets. Um, so I think, you know, if, if, if you're a tenant farmer, then you're definitely there are going to be some interesting discussions with landlords. And, you know, people have got to have a bit of reality check here because the high rents that have been paid for entities are just not going to be um, viable in this new structure. So I think it's you know, a bit of a wholesale change
0: obviously um arable farms will be looking for new ways to make money in future um and diversification is an option would you urge a farmer to to consider diversification at a time of such uncertainty i guess it really depends on what they um what they opt to do but broadly speaking
1: yeah i I mean i think um i think you know one of the most important things is that you know, I don't consider diversification a sort of panacea for solving all the problems. The most important thing, I think, first of all, is to sort out your current business and don't don't sort of put that to one side. So, fundamentally, sort out the business. And then it's about, well, what are the assets that I don't utilize? You know, are they buildings? Can they be put to another use? You know, have I got other skills that I can utilize? Have I got different markets? Are, you know, can I add value to some of the produce that... Um, you know, that I grow, and as you know, you know, quite a few people have done that very successfully on a, on a niche local scale. So I think, you know, there are lots of opportunities, but, it, it, you know, there are complexities. You know, if you're letting your building and it's not for agricultural use, then you could, you might need planning consent, or more likely to need planning consent, and then you're into business rates. And so this is quite a complex area. And, you know, I would just urge people to get some good advice before you sort of, you know, get too far entrenched down that road but fundamentally sort out your farming business first before you start looking at diversification
0: thank you Philip there's some really good advice there and I guess the really key message is we need to get on with this now
1: yeah I mean it's my my a lot of people will keep thinking, well, I'll look at it next year. And, and, and they get really busy in their farms, you know, Alice. And, and the problem then is that the that year's gone by, and it's a, the next year the cut's even harder. You know, it's 20, for bigger farmers this year, it's 25%. Well, you yeah, know, okay, it's doable, unless you happen to be one of the bigger businesses that I'm involved with, and then it's still a big chunk of money. But actually, the next year, they start rashing it up really quickly. And when you think that, you know, for large farms... You know, seventy percent over one hundred fifty thousand would have gone by twenty twenty four. That's that's really a significant. And, and also, I mean, I did a little. I did a little. You know, for most of my clients, I've done a little set of calculations. So it's interesting to look up what those deductions look like and the income that actually is lost over the four year period alone. It, it, it you know, when you when you total it all up, it's pretty significant, and you've got to replace it.
0: Yeah, and that is the challenge, isn't it? We're going to hear a bit more um, later in the programme about how we can't necessarily replace income, but we can cut costs further. Thank you very much, Philip. All
1: right, take care, my
0: dear. So next up, crunching down into the numbers a bit more, is AHDB's Harry Henderson, who's Knowledge Exchange Manager for Cereals and oil seeds. And Harry's going to tell us a bit about the characteristics of a top-performing arable farm, according to AHDB's benchmarking data, and also where he's identified good areas that farmers might want to focus on within their business.
2: Hello, how are
0: you doing? I'm good, thanks. How are you doing?
2: Very good,
0: very good. It's a wet, horrible day, but never mind. It's miserable, isn't it? Yeah. So, Harry, um, as Philip said earlier, benchmarking is really key to understanding um, your business, and AHDB obviously has the FarmBench program, so looking at the data you've accumulated from FarmBench, are there any really clear trends between the best performing arable farms and the lower performing ones?
2: Um, I think there is. I think the 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 standout uh, trend is attention to detail. Uh, it's probably a no-brainer, but um, it is it, the, the the greater attention to detail that's paid, um, the, the 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 more resilient the farm tends to be, uh, and the, the better the handle on costs. When you know your costs, then you're able to do something about it. So that's the that's very much the benefit behind farm bench. Um, one of the other trends that's appeared is that. We don't see economies of scale, um, if there are farms, large farms, that are achieving economies of scale, it seems to be a very rare thing that a large farm, 5,000 acres and more, um, struggle to get their costs under control, whereas we see a 300-acre, 200-acre arable farm um, seem to know that they are on the smaller end of the, of the scale and will manage their costs accordingly. So. I think one of the standout, um, uh, uh, not a trend as such, but a, a point of observation is that economies of scale are difficult to achieve. So, if anything, Bench has told us to, to do things better rather than do things bigger.
0: That's very interesting about economies of scale because I think a lot of people think, myself included, that you know much bigger farms have more opportunity to have bigger profits. And then when it comes to productivity, is it a case of yield is king and cost secondary, or is price the more significant factor here?
2: Yield can be king, but uh, it's got to come at a reasonable cost. And I think chasing yield and then hoping for the yield after you've put all of the uh, monetary value into it in terms of of, um, establishment and husbandry and harvesting and drying in some cases as well. Drying is not cheap. Then sometimes, uh, um, you know, the yield yield is 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 not king. It's important, but costs are going to be more important in, in the future. I think.
0: And Philip mentioned earlier about fixed costs, um, most notably machinery and labour. So, do you see any correlation between? Um, machinery ownership or renting, or even structures like machinery shares in terms of overall profitability?
2: Yeah, I think um, the machinery one is an interesting thing. Number one fact is that the machinery isn't going to come down in price. Uh, even with the with the uh, new agricultural policy and the changes and elms coming in, machinery is going to stay at the, the level it is at the moment, it's not going to come down. Um, be made in reducing soil movement. Um, so, are we over-cultivating our soils at the moment? There's many photographs online and in the media of a what is a min-tilled drill working in what is a very very fine seedbed, and this can be prohibited to yield rather than enhance it. So, there's a lot of costs gone into preparing the seedbed for a a, a drill that's perp- perfectly capable of working in a in a uh, in a more coarse seedbed. So. There's some cost going out there in terms of establishment. Um, Machinery-wise, does every arable farm need a self-propelled sprayer? Will a trailed machine, which will have just as much technology on it these days, uh, work just as, just as well? Um, of course, uh, a self-propelled was good for ground clearance, and that was for a petal spray and all-seed rape, but of course there's a lot less uh, all-seed rape being grown now, so perhaps that will influence things. But of course, in reducing the amount of cultivations, uh, will have quite a dramatic effect on the requirements of labor. And the labor profile from a, uh, a arable farm will have huge peaks and troughs. So if the spring cropping comes into into more into vogue than it has in, in recent years, there'll be a, a huge peak in the spring, then it will drop to nothing towards the summer, Going to be a huge peak in, in for harvest and for a quick bit of drilling, and then it's um, then it will drop again down to nothing in the in the winter. So there's some thinking to be done around the labour profiles and how labour is best used on the farm if uh, if soil movement in particular changes.
0: And what about the difference between um, owning it and renting it?
2: It's very much down to the individual and the the farmer's attitude to risk. We have farmers that would rely heavily on one good tractor Mm -hmm. that it keeps fresh and there's other farmers that have 10 older tractors which he's also happy with and uh, there's nothing wrong with either thought process uh, unless you have 10 very good tractors or there's shiny tractors in the shed and they're costing a lot of money in terms of fixed cost or you're relying heavily on one older tractor which could cause problems if you have any downtime so there's There's not really a a hard and fast rule. It's down to the farmer's attitude to risk. If you cannot take any downtime, then you're better off with a tractor and uh, uh, keeping it fresh. In terms of ownership, the more expensive way is have it on higher purchase and with the option to buy at the end. And then rather than buy the tractor at the end, you go for another higher purchase term you might may as well have gone for a contract hire which will then allow you to pay for just the hours of use or you go for hire purchase and you buy the tractor at the end of it and you keep it for five six seven twelve thousand hours um i was talking to a farmer uh, this uh, this afternoon about he's happy to keep his tractor for twelve thousand hours if it's running well if he feels it's not
0: earlier about reduced cultivations and reducing costs we're seeing grants available now for certain machinery like this is this a good way to invest in kit that could potentially make savings
2: A no-till drill in the wrong conditions and get themselves into more trouble than they were before they started. In terms of poor contra- uh, compaction management uh, and, and and late drilling where they've missed the window. Traditionally, a no-till drill needs to go in better conditions than a time-based drill. Um, there are time-based drills in the in the productivity scheme, um, but they're just the one-pass uh, direct drills. So. It can be used. I just would um, caveat the, the, um, the, the grant with the, the, the person buying the drill needs to take it seriously and, and not think that it's a throwaway item because um, I can see that some farms would end up in bother buying a drill, making that leap from a conventional soil uh, management system with a plough and a power harrow going straight over to a no-till drill and, and getting themselves into trouble simply because they were encouraged to buy the drill for the, the productivity scheme. So the drill is just one step in about 10 steps to reduce your your, uh, your soil movement. And it, it's often said to be about step seven uh, in, the, in, the, in the series of steps to get to a, to a, a minimal disturbance or, or no disturbance system. So yes, it can help, but it should come with a warning as well.
0: Yeah, and I guess particularly during times of sort of uncertainty, it might not be the best idea to jump into something like that as well.
2: I think if you're going to make the fullest use of the grant, then you're pretty well on the route to reduced tillage and no tillage already. Yeah. And this has just dropped into your lap a treat. If you're thinking, well, I'll have that and I'll buy a drill and and I'll spend the money, then it could end in disaster.
0: Yeah, exactly. So that's the big the big changes done. What about, you know, marginal gains, small changes that can potentially add up to really make a difference to the bottom line? I think
2: there's lots of things that you can do and I think benchmarking is a is a great tool to highlight these uh, these smaller adjustments. Um, and it's interesting that uh, we spoke about agronomy earlier and one of the, the things that arise from Benchmarking is the relationship that you have with your agronomist. Um, There's always this um, uh, theory that uh, a company agronomist will cost more than than an independent one. We don't find that to be the case. But what we do see a difference is, is that the relationship with the agronomist is so important that you need to go crop walking with the agronomist and give the agronomist a feel of where you want to be with your farm. If, they, uh, if you don't really have much to do with the agronomist and they send their, their recommendations in every two weeks or every, every week or so, um, but you're not giving them a steer on where things need to be on your farm, then they te- tend to migrate to a, uh, a more robust um, programme.
0: I guess that's where It comes down to the attention to detail being so important as you said at the beginning.
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Brilliant. Thank you, Harry. No problem. Anytime. Hi. I'm Natalie Wood. You're a country arable agronomist, and I'm here to remind you about fertilizer quality characteristics. The three main things you need in a good quality fertilizer are a high strength score, meaning it can be spread over larger bandwidths uniformity of size and shape of the particles for even spreading and therefore even crops and finally bulk density think ping pong ball versus golf ball the heavier denser particles will spread further and be less affected by wind yara axan has all these qualities and more visit our website yara.co.uk for more information And our last guest on today's cost cutting episode is going to drill down into what's going on in the field so from cutting inputs and cost of production to making the most out of stewardship schemes on your farm i'm very pleased to have ben harrington who is soil fertility and plant nutritionist and agronomist for Foss here hiya ben hi alice
3: how are
0: you i'm good thanks how are you good yeah not
1: too bad not too bad thank you
0: good and harry and philip sort of outlined um whether now is a good or a bad time to make changes to the more sort of business structure but i wanted to drill down more into the crop so when it comes to sort of revamping your input program is now a good time in that you know rewards will be seen fairly quickly or is it a bit of a longer process that perhaps involves more risk
3: I think in in my opinion now is is absolutely the time to have a rethink and and definitely to restructure where priorities on crop production may be Uh, and certainly going towards the fact that in the loss of BPS and with environmental schemes being integrated in for payment instead and definitely with diversification of other business aspects coming onto more farms, whether livestock or ag forestry, it, it will all have a positive impact on reducing farm inputs overall. It is Uh, very important to understand though that every farm holding a field across the farm are all in a different place to to address this question from one another Mm. and also taking into the fact that you know every season is different and so in terms of reducing inputs um, you do have to take a very close look at soil health and plant health and if you've got areas which they've got big limiting factors, whether it's can compaction or you've got uh, very heavy chemical residues that are then chelating certain elements, uh, you need to address these or whether it is, if it's just as simple as, as water retention and low organic matter levels, some of these do need to be addressed before then you can start bringing those inputs back down. We do have various different approaches that people will and can use to bring the cost down and a lot of people do start with fertilizer inputs and so it also will then come into the factors what people would like to do with rotations, crops that they want to choose, whether then it's winter or spring, uh, if they're happy to then integrate catch and cover crops into the system, whether then they want to be using biology, that there is so many interactions in the crop and through the each different input as to then what impact you may have on, on that crop going forward. But it is it's definitely definitely worthwhile. Um, the the scheme side of things are absolutely no brainer to integrate into the system, and they they can easily replace low yielding or underperforming areas, and organise to create that green bridge around the farm to to enable the beneficials to get around the whole area. But not only to pollinate, but to predate on crop press as well, which is which is much to our benefit. And where we've integrated these into a lot of farms, where they're looking at their inputs, we have actually eradicated the need for insecticides on the farm. And uh, we've, we've got multiple farms now that haven't needed to use insecticides for over the last eight years. And, and this is brilliant. And, and we think really as an example that a single ladybird over its lifetime could consume up to 5,000 aphids. And you can have a hoverfly that could eat up to 50 aphids a day. And does it not make sense to, to promote these on our farms and, and utilise nature rather than consistently take them out with insecticides or, or poor farm management?
0: Yeah, definitely. And for free. Yeah,
3: and for free. And uh, well, and again, you're, you're going to be paid paid quite good money from, from the schemes to actually do this. But I think you definitely have to take into account when you, it's got to be set up sensibly around the farm. Um, a green bridge is required to allow things to travel properly to get the most benefit generally for beneficials you tend to say okay well they' only really travel about 50 meters away from some of the margins in their habitats anyway so that would also have to be factored if you if you really wanted to use that way and, and promote that onto the farm um, you'd have to set it up effectively to, to allow the maximum travel distance of, of the beneficials to, to take out your crop pests in in that sense uh, but I I have seen many case studies certainly on the environmental schemes replacing underperforming areas say Three to five percent of uh, of what isn't performing, and in these cases, actually, when you when you look at the results in the first year, the farms still made the same amount of money that they earned prior to the schemes. Also, taking into account that they've reduced their acreage as well, and uh, and in few places they are actually seeing increased yield and profit on certain areas of the farm as well, whether that's due to pollination or predation, um, and, and I think that's absolutely absolutely brilliant. So that definitely factors in.
0: Yeah, definitely. And you've, yeah. you've obviously just spoken about um, insecticides and in underperforming areas, but what might a lower input program look like? So when you go to meet a grower, this is really generally speaking, um, yes. but where can savings generally be made on a farm standard approach to inputs?
3: When we first approach a farm. Uh, again, I think the farm resiliency and the soil health do need to be at the forefront of the decision making. And it has to be integrated into that system before before we can delve into keeping crop production up and reducing inputs at the same time, but still still getting the most financial benefit. I think it's easy for a lot of people to start reducing inputs, but unless they're aware and taking other things into account, they'll actually see reduced yields and reduced margins as well. So you do have to be a little bit careful on how you how you approach the situation. Yeah. Um, and we do have to take into account the basics of farming as well, so such as looking just into rotations. So, you know, tight intensive rotations within that system will not be conducive to a low input program. And it's just under a promotion of monocropping. And so diversity is also key to take into account when deciding on the rotation and the crops that will be reducing the inputs on. And then why, why that is so key is that different species of plant will interact with different sets of microbes within the soil. This then leads to the effect that the more diversity plants within the rotation, the greater the number of microbes such as bacteria, fungi, nematodes, protozoa, et cetera, that we can interact with, leading us to greater levels of competition and predation against soil pathogens sorry, within the soil profile. And uh, so that that's the key uh, from a soil point of view. And then really what we want to do is we want, we need to be doing more testing on the farm uh, which is an absolute necessity to know how likely things are to perform yeah and so we want to look at more in-depth tests for soil and, and sap and tissue analysis uh looking at the availability of what we have and actually what the limiting factors are in a lot of cases certainly from these soil tests we we test what's there in quantity but not actually what's becoming available to the crop and i think once we jump into these and we start to focus on okay let's let's recycle these nutrients more Uh, whether then that's with with larger root systems whether it's companion crops whether then that's catch crops cover crops what we want to do is we want to create that into an available form to then recycle it around in the top profile so we know that that is then going to recycle back into the following crop and uh, in an areas where people are already using these cover crops and they're and they're jumping into spring cropping as a low input program which tends to be the main approach because it's it's a lot easier to get into uh, we have people with cover crops that we can measure, you know, they, they can hold up to about 330, I've seen 350 kilos of nitrogen within a cover crop, um, and anywhere we've had about 70 kilos of phosphate, up to 300 kilos of potassium, um, 25 kilos of magnesium. You think this, it, this is not just a cover crop, this, this is a fertiliser source as well, yeah. but all we've done is we've mineralized that from deeper in the profile with the soil. And uh, so what we're saying is, is very key to then manage that, but that can come become available to the crop. And so nitrogen, not all of it will become, because a lot of it will be digested, and it's, it's all about carbon-nitrogen ratios as well. But in a few cases, we've we've been able to see that actually 50% of what we've sequestered has actually started to become available for the following crop. And so if we take this into account and we manage the, the timing that it takes for that, that cover crop to be desiccated or deteriorating, uh, to become available for the following crop, uh, we can we can we can and have fed uh, whole spring crops just with with cover crops, and so if if you if you want to look at immediate reductions, I mean those those are also places that that should be looked at, um, but you have to measure then what is likely to become available and what and what isn't, and then counteract that in terms of your
0: inputs. Yeah, and that'll make a big difference to carbon targets and stuff going forward as well, I suppose. So that's quite a win-win.
3: Absolutely, yeah. When when we measure the cover crops, generally it's, it's not taking into account what you have as root growth. So really, we're only just measuring the, t- the top growth. So there should be extra there as well. And uh, and I do think it's kind of irrelevant, but the, the carbon credits that will come in in the future for farms will will definitely be key to, to get onto. And, and the cover crop, catch crop side of things alongside this with low input programs is really going to benefit farms
1: to make make the most out of that
0: yeah and and as you sort of touched on um one of the most important things here is how do you get that balance between risking the health of the crop um and cutting costs so obviously 2020 was quite a low disease year but you know 2021 could be the opposite so how do we make sure we don't overstep the mark when it comes to trying to reduce inputs
3: well, I think it's in, in a lot of the aspects. I think for reducing stuff from fertilized science or health side, actually, you've got to, you've got to earn the right first to build that resilience. And so, it's like reducing nitrogen. You you can't turn around one day and just say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna drop this nitrogen by by fifty kilos. Yeah. Um, because it, it, the efficiency just isn't there. We we still need to get nitrogen from somewhere. And I will say, inorganic in nitrogen, actually, generally is largely inefficient. Um, but if we can then find that from another from another area and whether then, again, that's sequestering it from from a companion crop or organic manures, it, it comes in a balanced form and we tend to see higher levels of efficiency so you can get away with lower rates. Um, but there are things, I mean, you can start off definitely looking at the variety and resilience. So, you know, we've got untreated yields now in, in some of these varieties, which are, which are brilliant and, you know, above 90%. And so in, in those situations, actually, the risk of reducing inputs becomes largely lower rather than choosing a variety that will tend to respond to chemical inputs and fungicidal inputs. So that's definitely a first place to start. Uh, Rotations come into it, so the diversity and and the increased likelihood of whether disease is gonna be a problem. Um, Your your nitrogen comes in, forms of nitrogen have an impact on the crop. So selecting the forms of nitrogen is, is definitely very important as well. Then if you go into liquid forms of nitrogen, we can offset it with carbon sources, um, and, and that is key. So we want to, to chelate and increase the efficiency as much as possible, and that, that will also act towards an inhibitor as well. And inhibitors, if you've got a granular, would be great because, again, efficiency as well. Um, or whether you go into folias and say, okay, well, I'm not going to put loads of, on, on the soil, which I know we're going to lose 40 to 60%, I'm going to, i'm going to apply folia increase efficiency and, and for that cost of the folia i'll then reduce the the um, application dose of the granules and so it's there's different approaches on how you how you can work around that but taking taking the nitrogen into account with carbon nitrogen ratios and what will recycle and what will break down again is, is going to be very key uh, nitrogen levels do impact uh plant health as well and so if you're going towards low input Programs we would tend to cap nitrogen. Say if if it was a winter wheat, we tend to cap it about 180 kilos. So at 180 kilos and below, we tend to see reduced levels of disease. And the more and more you drop it, the less problems we tend to see. 180 kilos and above, the more stress we put into the plant, the more we drive growth, the more we drive demand, and so that the, the greater the imbalance we tend to get between other elements. And so disease or pests and weakness tend to creep in and so that's when you'll start to see more requirements for things like fungicides and insecticides in that as well. Um, pesticidal inputs I think for a lot of people on, on the lower input programs, it really start out just saying is we, we use it only as necessary. And so for some people that go along this route they tend to, to start the system and say, Okay, well, let's do everything we can to avoid having to use it. And if we need to use it, then we need to use it. That's totally fine. But we, we don't necessarily need to use it as a, as a preemptive approach. Um, we can use other methods to, to keep the plant healthy and keep disease away. But if we need to fall back on it, I think once you've used it generally because of how it then weakens the plant and takes the wax away, uh, actually you do need to resort to, to continuing on that program. So I think it's, it's knowing also when when to stop and when to to resort back to the conventional method um from that situation as well
0: yeah i guess it's all about that flexibility
3: yes yeah and again i mean even if we look at things like herbicides uh you know drilling dates come into it massively as well if, you, if you're later drilling you can save an awful lot of money um and the uh, same for both winter and spring crops and so actually to a sense, you can almost eradicate those those large herbicide costs just from drilling later or then changing machinery and and sometimes with the direct drills because you're you're not necessarily mineralizing any uh any nitrates within the soil you're less likely to get weeds germinate and so there's, there's different approaches on how it can all factor in but every every input and every management practice will have some interaction with everything else and it's just kind of keeping aware that what you're doing what impact may that have is it going to be positive is it going to take my system back is it is it going to weaken the plant in some way and it's just thinking okay well if i'm going to weaken it how can then i offset that impact from what i've just done and it's just taking those those kind of thoughts into the process that that will keep everything more stable and reliable
0: yeah and we're hearing more and more about um you know these biological products so biostimulants and biopesticides and things like that um, they're quite expensive compared to chemistry which is obviously off-putting in itself um particularly when the results aren't necessarily as obvious do you think the cost is likely to come down in future or do you think farmers will need to kind of accept this higher cost of production moving forward
3: i think the as the use goes up i do believe the costs are likely to come down um so i do i do think that that will happen um as a lot of the products go, I think from a from a biostimulant point of view, uh, it, it's how you use them, and the benefit you you get from those are very much dependent then on where they factor in. Biostimulants can't be seen as a replacement of a of a chemical product; they they just cannot be used, um, say, as a replacement of a fungicide or a longer fungicide because you won't you just won't see the results from them. They have to be factored in to get the most benefit as a systematic approach and so it's less simple to know when to use them how to use them but you can get very big very very big benefits and responses from those but some of some, you do have to be careful some of the bar stimulants are very pricey um, and so I think definitely shopping around but quality does differ and so I think if you can find a reliable advisor or someone that, that is clued up on this Um, It's definitely worthwhile having a chat with those and and just being careful that you don't get shot in the foot if you do want to jump into this. Um, Biologicals are very pricey, um, but again, I think they will come down in cost. Uh, Depending on how you see or what benefits you tend to see from using them, um, I think they, they are absolutely almost worth the price. You do have to be very careful, though, certainly from a biological point of view. If you're putting biology into conditions it does not like, it is absolutely not worth the money because they will not respond. They will not populate. They will not give you any benefits. So if you've got compaction, if it's if it's waterlogged, if you've got no air in the system, there's no food source. There is absolutely no point in using biology. Um, it, you you just won't see any response. And I think people have to take into account that you know there's much there's much benefit to using certain species of a of a replacement for seed treatments for plant health and. And there's many of the species that are used are also growth uh, from race and bacteria, And you can see tremendous improvement in root mass and root hair development. And it, it, it will help set you up for, for lower inputs and recycling nutrients within the profile. And if, if you can use inoculants, they do actually almost fast forward your, your soil, uh, possibly up to you know, a couple of years from you doing it naturally we should all remember that there is microbial presence in all soils and it's just getting the right conditions and food sources to promote the microbial mass that you have. And argumentably biologicals are not always necessary depending on what, on what you want to use them for. Um, and we can, we can largely promote what we already have by increasing the amount of photosynthesis and the efficiency of photosynthesis within our crops already. And, you know, our crops will pump out 20 to 70% of their root exudates, um, you know the photosynthesis and the root exudates which is a huge, huge food source, and the same, you know, with if we're increasing organic matter levels, we're increasing that level of habitat food source that they can they can have in the soil as well. Um, and there's other ways that you know we people are brewing biologicals, um, whether then that's inoculants or or compost teas. This this will drop the cost massively, um, and so that's that's definitely something to look at. And again, I think if you've got someone that's that specialised that can advise on that, that that's brilliant. Um, the only thing I'll say on compost teas is that they have to be done properly and as a lot of people make their own there is a level of unknown as a species that you may be promoting and uh, you know, the example per teaspoon of soil there, there's more microbial life within that teaspoon than there is people on earth and so it's yeah, exactly the crazy. same for compost and so if you've got a bad source of compost that you're, you're then brewing up you could be brewing pathogens or anaerobic microbes which can can have a very very detrimental impact to crops and soil so doing it properly or knowing what you're putting on has has a lot of benefit but it's um, it, it's all brilliant and, and very cost effective when when
1: done correctly
0: yeah and i suppose the more people that move towards that way of farming the more we'll know you know we'll know which products work best in which situations and things like that
3: Yes, yeah, and I think it's going back to more holistic management, and uh, it, it does take a lot of effort to, to to line up holistic management alongside modern day agronomy um, and taking into account the interactions again between the two. But uh, as as things develop, the knowledge base that is there is is definitely going to be promoted, and I I can see farmers being the ones that will be in control of of what they use in this sense, um, and uh, and leading the system, which I I think is brilliant.
0: Yeah, yeah, I hope so thank you ben wonderful no problem
1: at all cheers all right
0: thanks i'm afraid that is all we've got time for for today but if you still haven't had the chance to catch up on this year's crop tech show you can still watch all the hubs and seminars on the crop tech website at croptechshow.com there's all sorts to tune into from carbon-free fertiliser who might be the winners and losers from the future elm scheme and much more on sustainable crop protection. Thanks for listening.